All right, dads, where you're sitting, please stand. just a second, I'm going to pray for our dads. Before I do that, may I offer just one word of encouragement. The greatest thing we can do for any child who is in our home is not be a world-class marshmallow cooker or the funnest guy in the world, but can be a man who pursues God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I know in these moments, I don't know if you're like me, There's a mixture of, boy, I hope they honor me well today, and, man, what have I done? If there is a child sitting next to you who still looks at you, if there's a child that calls you today, if there is a child who is in your family who still calls you dad, there's still time to make your name known as a man of God. May that be today and as we move forward. Let me pray for these fellows who are standing. Lord, Lord, I, I pray that in this moment you would remind us of the greatest truth, the fact that you have called us to be your children and to pursue you. And so, Lord, I pray for dads who are wrestling and struggling, who um, don't feel like they've done what you've called them to do. I pray that you would give them grace and strength for this moment and that that we would simply make you the passion of our hearts. I pray for dads whose today is such a tough day. Um, Dads of kids who have gone wayward. Dads of kids who have made bad decisions. Dads of kids who who've passed. Lord, today is not an easy day. I pray that they would find themselves embraced by the arms of our everlasting Father. And that as a church, we would continue to encourage these people. That we would come alongside them. Remind them of what it is that you've done for them. We thank you for grace and strength and peace. We thank you that today we can celebrate who you are and that in this moment we can be reminded yet again of how great your love is for us. In Jesus' precious name I pray, amen. Let's give our dads a a round of applause. All right, the book of Zephaniah. This is another one where I'm sure you all have your life verses in it. Um, Zephaniah, at this point it is, it's much easier to go to the book of Matthew and start turning backwards. I mean, you're only talking about 12, 13 pages backwards from Matthew, so you may want to do that. Uh, the book of Zephaniah, let me, let me begin by asking you this question. It's Father's Day, and so this is an appropriate question, I think. Because even if we're not dads, um, perhaps we've experienced this, have any of you, um, perhaps, probably when you were younger, um, had a situation arise while you were home, maybe your siblings were there, your mom was there, and something occurred that was most definitely not your fault, but you got blamed for, because we're all innocent, right? And, and it just, it continued and continued and continued till it got to that breaking point, till it got to that boiling point where mom's response to you was, you just wait 
until your dad gets home. Okay, so let's be honest. Raise your hand. Have you ever heard that phrase come from mom's lips? Raise your hand if you heard that phrase. You just wait for daddy to get home. Now, I'm, even if you didn't, I think you can relate to the fact that that probably wasn't, wow, just wait till daddy pulls in. We're going to have a celebration. I don't think that was the, the feeling behind it. In the book of Zephaniah, though there is incredible good news, and I'm going to tell you up front, that's where we're going to land on the really, really, really good news. There's also a declaration from this prophet Zephaniah that basically says, you just wait until your dad gets home. What he says is this. He says in verse 2, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I'll sweep away the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, the rubble of the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. So, so what you're hearing is God's declaration of judgment against mankind. And this is a, a common theme in the minor prophets. What you're going to find is this. There is no hope for the rebellious. God's very clear. I'm coming and I'm going to wipe it out. I'm going to clean house. I'm going to deal with all the business I need to deal with, and it's going to be utter, and it's going to be cataclysmic. Why? Well, Zephaniah gives us a little bit of a picture. Let's look at verse 4 of chapter 1. I'll read a few verses and kind of give us a picture of why God would bring this judgment. He says this, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal, the name of the idolatrous priests, along with the rest of the priests, those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet still swear by Milcom, those who have turned back from following the Lord who don't seek the Lord or inquire of him. So, so why is God going to bring judgment? There's a number of reasons there. There's idol worship involved. When you see the name Baal mentioned, that's, that's most certainly talking about idol worship. So there's idol worship that is pre, pre, um, prominent, there's the word, uh, among the people. There's a patronizing of God happening. So you see that in, in verse, um, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 1. It says that they bow down and swear to the Lord, and yet they still swear to this other idol, Milcom. They're, they're just trying to make sure their bases are covered. So we'll take a little of this and a little of that and a little of this. And, and oh, well, we still pray to God, but we also... It says, and not only that, we're living, the, those who claim to know God are living as practical atheists. It says at the end of verse 6, they don't seek the Lord. They don't inquire of him. If you jump ahead to verse 12 of chapter 1, it says that they, they say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. He's, he's just kind of this complacent being who, who doesn't interject himself into anything. And so there is this, this life of practical atheism, but it can be boiled down to the judgment of God is coming against the people. It can be boiled down to verse 17, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. That, that's cut and dry. You don't need any of the other stories. You don't need any of the other illustrations. You don't need any other reasons. What it comes down to is that. You have sinned against God, and that is bad news. And it pictures the need that we have for good news. We are a proud, unbelieving, thoughtless, careless, greedy, self-serving people. So make sure you put that on your Father's Day card this afternoon. Dear Dad, Pastor said you are a... <laughs> that's, that's who we are in our nature. 
We, we live to please ourselves. And, and when, we, when we live to please ourselves, what we end up doing with God is we, we try to play him. We, we try to, to, to use him. We try to, to fool him. We fight him. And then we finally, we try to be him. Is there any better description of rebellion than that? Our sin, our rebellion, it separates us from God and we are helpless to do anything about it ourselves. We cannot go to any other place. We cannot hide in any other place in order to escape the judgment of God. When his wrath is coming, there's no place we can hide. You can see that. Go flip over to chapter two. I'm just gonna jump through chapter two and hit four verses for you. So chapter two, it just pictures this so perfectly. We cannot hide from God's judgment. Chapter two, verse five, he says this, woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, you nation of the Cherethites. The word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. So let me stop there for a second. What he's saying is, I will judge the Philistines. Now, in relationship to Judah and Jerusalem, that is to the um, west. I'm picturing it in my head, sorry. That's to the west. The Philistine nation is to the west. So you can't run to the west because I'm going to judge those people. Go down to chapter 2, verse 9. He says, Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Moab shall become like Sodom. The Ammonites will become like Gomorrah. So he says, now, you not only can you not run to the west, to the Philistines, you cannot run and hide to the, to the Moabites or the Ammonites. You can't run to the, to the east, because I'm going to bring my judgment there too. Then skip down to verse 12. You also, O Cushites, shall be slain by my sword. You cannot run to the south, to the land of Cush, because God's judgment will fall there too. And then the very next verse, 13, he will stretch out his hand against the north and he will destroy Assyria. So, so the Assyrian Empire, so what God's saying is judgment is coming because you are rebellious against me. You can't run to the west. You can't run to the east, nor to the south, nor to the, to the north. You, you cannot run. You cannot hide any place. God's judgment is coming. You can't hide in a, in a specific situation that you think may uh, make it better for you. So let me picture that for you a little bit. The, the, the idea of uh, the, the Philistines, those were a, a very tough people. And in essence, what he's saying is not only can you not run to the West, you can't be tough enough to protect yourself from God's judgment. You can't run to the East to the Moabites and the, the Ammonites. That was a uh, loosely related group of people to the, the children of Israel. He says, you, you can't run to them. They, they, their, their relationships will not protect you. You can't run to the South to the Cushites, which are a, kind of a mysterious people, thinking that you might just happen to disappear into the mystery that's there, because you cannot hide in mystery. And you certainly can't run to the North to the superpower, which is the Assyrian Empire, thinking you will be able to overthrow God because there's no hope for you in that. You cannot run to them. They can't help you because they all will be judged as well because of their rebellion. So you can't run to any place. You can't hide in any strength. And one of the strengths... Um, it's the last verse of, of chapter one. I'll just have you flip back to that real quick. One of the strengths that we tend to see, particularly in our culture today, is this. We try to hide within our materialism. We try to hide in our, our, our financial gain. And he says this, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
It doesn't matter how big your bank account is, how, how, inve- how your investments are going. It doesn't matter how, how broad your portfolio is. It doesn't matter how much you've saved up. It doesn't matter how well you have um, um, uh, uh, taken care of your budget. It doesn't matter if you are a Dave Ramsey junkie. The Dave Ramsey junkies were all just kind of very uncomfortable. I'm, like, hmm, huh. I'm sorry. It won't protect you from the judgment of God. There's no escape from his holy judgment. The consequences of rebellion against God are these. We'll start reading in verse 14 of chapter 1. I promise it gets to really good news. But you can't enjoy the good news unless it's dark first, right? Right? So here's the judgment that's going to come. Verse 14, the great day of the Lord is near. It's near and it's hasting fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish, of ruin, of devastation. A day of darkness and gloom, of clouds and thick darkness, of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. I want you to feel the weight of judgment. I want you to to understand that in our rebellion, there is no hope. There is judgment that is coming. As our, our rebellion is exposed, what it tells us is this. We have been separated from God. Sometimes I think sin is misunderstood. Um... And how it, it causes our relationship to God to, to, to be strained. Let me, let me picture this for you. I think in order for, okay, sometimes we picture sin as being the thing that is drowning us. And we're out in a lake, we, we don't have a boat, we have no life jacket, we have no life circle. I was going to say lifesaver, but that's a candy, so still is a lifesaver, I guess. You have no, no, no signs of anyone saving you, and so you begin to drown. And I think sometimes that's the way we describe sin. And salvation is then described as Jesus comes along in a boat completely unexpected. And while we are drowning, while we are, our lungs are filling with water, he reaches down and he lifts us into the boat. But that's not accurate. Because what sin is... You're not drowning. You've already drowned. Your lungs are filled with water. There are no measurable brain waves. Your heart has long stopped. And you are dead. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 says, You are dead in your trespasses and in your sins. Salvation is him coming and bringing you back to life by breathing in you the spirit of it's, it's, it's giving you this, this new creation. And Andy said it, all the old things are gone. And all things have become new. That, that's what salvation is. Listen, listen to the cry of Zephaniah. This is where it starts getting good. He's like, listen, it's hopeless. You're, you're hopeless in your rebellion. But, but, but I'm telling you, if you are humble, and if you will admit that you are hopeless, there's actually hope for you. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says this, gather together. Gather, oh, oh, shameless nation. Pull it together. Come together. Come to your senses. Can't you see what you're doing to yourselves? Before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, 
Before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord. Before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Man, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, and do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. I mean, it's amazing. He says, but pull yourself together, gather together, comprehend what it is that you're doing in, rebe- in your rebellion. Why? Because time isn't endless. Verse 2 says, listen, before this happens, before the judgment comes, before you take your last breath, by all means, look at this moment of your life as an opportunity, as a, as a gift from God to, to, to examine yourself and to do what? He says this in verse 3, seek, seek him in humility. See, that's where deliverance is. It's not in, in running away to anything or anyone, but it's in running to him and enjoying his kindness and favor in you. I love, and it's, it's, it's hard. It took me a little while to love it. <laughs> the end of verse 3, I mean, all these things are laid out. He says, seek the Lord, seek his righteousness, seek his humility. So there's no question Zephaniah is saying, you know, run to God, run to God. But, but that next word, then perhaps, man, I don't want that to say perhaps. I want that to say is you, you run to him in humility, you seek righteousness, and you, 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 you seek him, and, and what's going to happen is then all of your life's going to be turned upside right. All the answers will be given to you. Everything will make sense. And you'll live, and, and what, what Zephaniah says, and then you, you do these things, and then per, perhaps there's a humility. What that's saying is that as you seek him, coming out of your, re- your rebellion and seeking him in your humility, you're recognizing that there is no reason in you that God should show you mercy. The only reason you should receive mercy is because it originates in God himself. The message of Zephaniah to this point is this, the only refuge from God's wrath is God himself. There's no hope to make yourself better for God. It's not like you just need to tread water a little more. You're dead. You need new life. And there's no place you can run. God's wrath and his judgment cover it all. But there is good news. And the good news is that even though we were separated from God because of our sins and helpless to do anything about it ourselves, that God loved us and sent his son, Jesus Christ who died for us, who rose from the grave and he defeated sin and death forever. See, our only hope isn't found in things or people or, or belongings. It's, it's found in the humbling of our hearts, actively taking refuge in Jesus' death for your sins. Here's the amazing part. When you, when you actively take refuge in Jesus Christ, <laughs> chapter three, you got to go to chapter three. I am about, I literally am, <laughs> There's a confession that nobody would know unless you're standing over my shoulder. I am flipping three pages. Two pages. I was just kidding. Got a little. Because I can't wait to get to this part. I'm serious. Um, When you find refuge in Jesus Christ and you run to Jesus Christ, even though there's absolutely no hope for you in your rebellion, but in humility, you run to him and confess with your mouth what your life demonstrates every day that you are a rebellious sinner in need of a savior. 
When you come to him and confess that you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you ask for him to be your savior, you, you run in and claim the finished work of Jesus Christ to be credited to your account, this amazing thing happens. Look at chapter three. I'll start in verse 15. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. There is no judgment for you in Jesus Christ. We, we, we know the verse, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful promise. It's also mentioned, <laughs> um, my wife's granddad's favorite hymn of all time was It Is Well. And, and this is completely off topic, but it's hilarious. He was about, I don't want to exaggerate, he's probably this tall. He did remind me, not her, but he reminded me of Elmer Fudd. That's what he, that's what he looked like to me. He was one of the most, and I mean this in all respect and, and love, one of the most brash men I have ever met. I mean, he, he, he was the type of preacher who would preach, and there would be teenagers in the balcony messing around, and he would be in the middle of preaching, and he would say, stop, he'd be like, hey, you, stand up! Where are your parents? Why are they up there alone? I mean, that's the kind of guy he was. He was a little freaky, but okay. He loved it as well. He did not have a musical bone in his body. And he would get, say, we're going to sing it as well. And he would get up there and he would get everybody and he would lead with two fingers. And he would lead down crouched like this. He'd be like, all right, watch me. I mean, if you didn't watch him, you were scared that he was going to come off the platform and like, but okay, watch me. And he would start. Until he got to verse three. And in verse three of that song, he came unglued. And he would start... I mean, he would start clapping to get people's attention, and all five fingers would come up then. Because verse three is, is I th we completely miss the power of that verse in that hymn. It's one of the most beautiful verses that has ever been written. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. We sing that like, my sin, oh, the bliss. The bliss of this glorious thought. It's not. My sin, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not, not just in part, the whole thing is nailed to the cross. I bear it no more. My sin is gone in Jesus Christ. The, the, the idea of, of, of what we have, I mean, there's, this isn't just like, okay, there's hope for the humble, but it's a complete hope. I mean, this is just for illustration purposes, but, but if you get to heaven and they pull out your file, I don't, there's no files, I'm sure of it, okay? But you pull out your file and they pull it out, your, one with your name on it, it is dripping with the blood of Christ. And when they open it up, that first page it says, Frank Taylor, holy, spotless, blameless. I mean, not because I am. You could ask anybody in this room. I was going to say there's a few people you could ask. You could ask anybody. But because of who Jesus is. Because of what Jesus did. And see, we, we, we find ourselves in this space of the already and not yet. Particularly when we read Old Testament, you, you find yourself in the space of already and not yet. There's prophecy that's been fulfilled, and yet there's a greater fulfillment. But, but even in our salvation, that we find ourselves in the already and not yet. We have been saved. There is no condemnation for us. There's, this, this is hard, but, but, but it's not yet. This is just a little taste. This is just, and, 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 I, and I can try to paint the picture for you. I love painting pictures. I love giving an illustration that helps kind of, ooh, got it, okay, I get it, because that's how I think. But, but, I, but I can't do that with this. Here, and scripture tells me I can't do that. 1 Corinthians 13. Now we see, but a, but a poor reflection in the mirror. 
But then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know even more fully as I am fully known. He says, listen, I, I would love to explain this to you, but it's like a foggy mirror. I mean, come on, I'll be honest with you. When I travel, I love to see pictures of my wife and my kids. I love to FaceTime. But it pales in comparison than when I'm standing right close to them. And so I, I don't think I could do this justice. There's another verse that tells me I know I can't, verse Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So I'm about to attempt something that I know is impossible. And I'm going to do my best at it. But just remember, no matter what I say, multiply that a gazillion times. And then we'll be getting close. See, this hope that we have for the humble, that, that stands in such stark contrast to the hopelessness of the rebellious, it, it, it erupts and it explodes when we grasp the fuller picture of what this means for the one who is in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice, exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. I'm going to stop there. Sorry, this is, I can't skip this one. I've got to jump into this. I Sing, shout, and rejoice. I, I think singing and how we approach singing and how we approach rejoicing and shouting and, and enjoying God is a testimony to how free we are in Jesus Christ. Right? Good. Hey, if we're clapping, we're all clapping. Come on. <laughs> Good rule. No half claps. So, so let me be completely honest with you. What limits you in your singing and in your physical expressions of worship in this room? Usually it's the dude sitting in front of you. Right? I'm going to be careful because I don't want to sing too loud or else they're going to think there's a seal getting murdered behind them or something. I don't want to... I don't want to <laughs> If I raise my arms, I'm not sure if I'm going to hit somebody. Or, or we're, we're, so, we're so just completely overwhelmed. So I, I love the people within our church who are so very free. And I'm not going to name names, but who are so very free to worship. I, I, I don't, <laughs> physical expression in worship is not just suggestion. It's commanded, just in case you were wondering. You read through the book of Psalms, and it is just riddled with demands and commands of you to sing, shout, lift your hands, clap your hands, bow, fall to your knees. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. There's physical expression of worship. Now, we all do it a different way. I get it. There's some of us who are, are, are um, a little shy, and so we're doing this. There's some of us that are full out there. I'm neither of those. Anybody that sits next to me, I apologize. I apologize for this whole side because I, I don't dance, but I dance. I, my, I have to keep my hands in my back pocket so I don't lose my balance. Just, just there's a little insider tip for you. But I am on my toes all the time. I, I don't clap. That's not because I'm against clapping. It's because I literally cannot sing and clap at the same time. I'm not lying. I cannot do it. It's impossible. But physical expression and worship marks how free we are and how bold we're able to be when we rejoice. It's, it's when our head and our heart are, are so completely connected. Everything else falls away. And that's why the Bible repeats it over and over. Sing and shout. Clap your hands, bow your heads, rejoice and be glad. So, so why? I, I jumped out. Why? Well, let me, let me, let's go back. I'll read 14 again. Oh, I may explode. All right, let's see what happens. I gotta be careful, sorry. Whew. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. 
Rejoice and exult with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel. The Lord's in your midst. You will never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. Let me, let me stop right there. Let me stop right there. And I have to tell you this, that, that hope is wonderful. And it's a beautiful thing when we understand that, that there is no judgment against us anymore. And that, that's hopeful and that's a great hope. And that should, should bring about a response in us. But the hope that we have erupts. The moment we realize that that God provides salvation, not just as an escape from judgment, but as an entrance into his joy. That that hope changes completely when it's just a fire insurance to when you understand you will be in his joy presence, the full and saving presence of God. Fear not, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a mighty one, a mighty warrior who's there to save. He is the mighty warrior who defeated death, sin, and the grave. I mean, we all have enemies that we would like to defeat, and we can name them, and yet yet God can look at us and just kind of smirk a little bit like, yeah, I know, that's a tough one, but I took on sin and death in the grave, and I won. We're not just given a, a, a standing and an escape from judgment, but we are also offered an entrance into his joy. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Please note who's doing the action. God himself will rejoice in you. To rejoice means literally to leap, to spring upon, to be delighted, to be pleased, to be glad. There's no sense at all of reluctance on God's part. When you walk into his presence and he's like, eh, all right. Oh no. Oh no, there is a rejoicing in his heart that I cannot explain, that I can't put into words, but I'm thankful he does. I'm thankful he does because it gives us a a better understanding of what it is that he's talking about here. Isaiah 62, the end of verse 5, says this. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Not all of us had the same experience at our weddings. For me, standing in the front, my mom right next to me, blubbering uncontrollably. My men who had been standing with me were all standing on the platform with their, the bridesmaids. And we had door, the doors open and I looked down that aisle and I saw my bride. What's it like when a groom sees his bride for the very first time? Because if you can wrap your head around that, you can wrap your head around what it's going to be like for God when he sees you. 
So maybe some pictures will help. That's the one I'm keeping up there. When you come into God's presence, he will rejoice over you like a groom rejoices over his bride. It'll be the most incredible thing you have ever experienced. I know, you will rejoice. You, you, you and I, we're gonna sing and we're gonna rejoice, but greater than our celebration will be God's celebration over us. Can you, can you wrap your head around that? Folks, banish from your mind forever the thought that God admits us into his presence, into his kingdom begrudgingly, as if Jesus found a loophole in the law, did some fancy lawyering to get us in. And no way. God himself, the judge, put Jesus forward as our sacrifice. And when we trust in Jesus, God welcomes us. It's the story of the prodigal. The daddy didn't stay on the porch. And he went and he threw his arms around the neck of his son. He put a ring on him. He, he killed the fatted calf. He started a celebration that went on for days. His heart was ready to burst. Folks, when we come into God's presence, it is not going to be a boring day. It's not going to be dull. It's not going to be uh, halos and wings and white robes and that's it. A Gregorian chants. I, that's the one that keeps coming back. A Gregorian chants. That's not heaven. That's not eternity. And, and it's not going to be just streets of gold and, and no more sorrow and no more tears. It's not going to be just the wrongs righted and, and questions answered. It's not just being reunited with the ones who have gone before us, although that's there and that's going to be beautiful and it's going to be precious. It's not going to just be seeing him face to face. It's going to be more than just worshiping him, more than singing 10,000 hallelujahs. On that great day, every wrong will be righted, every question will be answered, and our great and awesome God will sing over us with these words, you are mine. So just wait till daddy gets home. Let's pray. Lord, you have overwhelmed me this week. I, I, I fully expected to go a different way with the message. I fully expected you to lead somewhere different. And Father, instead, you, you parked us where you parked us. And I am grateful and thankful because God, I'm going to be honest and I'll be transparent that there's, there's been a lot of times this week where I have questioned my, how you look at me. I fail so many times and I sin so many times and I'm asking forgiveness over and over and over and countless times. I thank you that in Christ there's no condemnation and that in Christ we can come into your presence knowing that you will not only endure us, you won't just put up with us, Father. Instead, you will celebrate our arrival. I thank you for Jesus. 
And I don't say that just because we're ending a, a message time and I'm supposed to say that. I say that because without Jesus, there is no reconciliation. There's no restoration of our relationship and I'm never gonna be able to see you. So Lord, I pray that the, that the people here today, if they don't know you, that they would understand there is great hope in Jesus Christ. That they can be fully restored back to you and they can come into your presence and not only sing and experience the fellowship of the saints worshiping you forever, but God, they can experience the unthinkable, unfathomable, unimaginable celebration that comes from your mouth when we come into your presence. God, we look forward to that day and we pray that you would give us the grace and the strength to live like it's true. Amen.